Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. I don't know uh, how I got called out for speeding when uh, (laughs) I didn't even do nothing yet. Yeah, so uh, I do have a little announcement to make at the beginning here, and uh, Rick and Vonnie Savage uh, have decided that it is time to retire. I know. So uh, I, you know, just want you to know how much that matters and that we want to celebrate them. Uh, Their last Sunday will be July 31st, and they are relocating to Arizona. So, I know. And that's what I want you to express to them. That's what I want you to express over these next few weeks. I want you to write cards. I want you... And then on the 31st, we'll celebrate them. They'll be in our services. They'll be out front. uh, And we want to say thanks. And just so you know, I don't know that all of you are aware of this little piece of trivia, but... Uh, Rick and Vani have been in ministry for 50 years. They're completing 50 years of ministry. And I say completing, they are completing 50 years. It doesn't mean they're done. I know Rick is already looking for, you know, where he's going to serve next. But 50 years ago, they were students at Pasadena Nazarene College over in Pasadena. And Rick's very first gig as a college kid training for ministry was to be the youth pastor of Montrose Church. Did you know that? Yeah. And somehow through that journey, God saw fit to bring him back here to spend these last 12 years or so with us serving and being in ministry here. And so... We love Rick and Vani. We love what they have been as a part of this congregation. And we don't ever let people go. We just hang on to them. And we know their son lives out in Santa Monica, so they'll be back. And we'll be pressuring them to not go to their son's church, who's also a pastor, but to come here. Amen? I mean, priorities are priorities. So pray for Rick and Vani. It is a big transition for them. And uh, we are going to miss them terribly, and we're thankful, but we really are spending this season in celebration. So, you know, when you think about what the ministry has meant to you over these years, write a card. Let's record it. Let's share it. It matters. Uh, And so think about that. If anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever saves their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now Jesus speaks those words in Matthew 16. And what's going on in Matthew 16 is that he's taken the disciples to visit Caesarea Philippi. And if you're getting the trajectory of the whole story of Matthew, we have this moment where he sort of turns his face away from Jerusalem and they begin to travel away. And incrementally, he takes the disciples further and further away from uh, Jerusalem. And he finally takes them to Caesarea Philippi, which is on the very northern border of Israel, almost into Lebanon. 
And when you get all the way up there, it's kind of an interesting place because in the first century, the Jews were forbidden to be at Caesarea Philippi. They were forbidden to be there because it was a place of great pagan worship. So a couple of things are going on on that mountainside. Number one, there's a big cave, and that cave is thought to be the birthplace. It's been celebrated in Greek mythology as the birthplace of the god Pan. So there's a temple to the god Pan built there right in front of the cave entrance. Not only that, but it is also, in legend, a part of the headwaters of the Jordan River. Now, that part's not a legend, but around that grows a mystical kind of cult, the headwaters of the Jordan. Even among the Jews, it was kind of celebrated as a mystical place. Then you get to the Greek and Roman mythology that tells us that anywhere water comes out of the ground is a gateway to Hades. Maybe you remember, you know, all of the mythology, there's a river called Styx, and when you die, you cross the river. The ferryman has to take you across the river Styx. We used to put coins on the eyes of uh, past folks who've passed to pay the ferryman to get you across the river Styx and into the underworld. And so the ancients believed that wherever water came out of the ground were the literal gates of Hades. Next to it was a temple to Caesar. Next to that, there was a temple to Apollo. And so it was a place of great pagan worship. So generally the Jews didn't hang out there. But Jesus took the disciples there and that's on that hillside standing in front of that that he says to them, who do people say that I am? Some say you are the prophet. Some say you are Elijah. Come back to life. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, for man did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven and upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's very contextual what he's saying. And then he says, I must go to Jerusalem and die there. And Peter says, we're not letting you go. Get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow me. Whoever saves their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I think when we kind of sit in that space and we let that sort of linger in, I think it means something about what is meaningful in life. And so I just ask you this question as we begin to explore the writings of Amos. What is the meaning of life? What do you find gives life meaning? And are you doing things every day that move you closer in pursuit of that meaningful life? What do you believe gives life meaning and are you doing things that are moving you into that space? Amos is a very unique writer, so let's put him contextually because I know all of you. I thought about this later and this is the great insights that you get when you think about what you should have done instead of what you're doing. What we should have done is we should have put all of the minor prophets in sequential order chronologically so that when we talk about them, we are just moving through the calendar in sequence. However, we didn't do that. Instead, we just took them as they come in the order in which they appear in the Bible, which are not sequential. So, therefore, you just have to have historical whiplash every week. (laughs) Amos wrote 40 years before the fall of the northern kingdom. So somewhere in the mid-8th century B.C., the northern kingdom falls around 726. So you get that sense. Now what's very, very unique about Amos is that 
unlike any other prophet in the Bible, Amos lives in the southern kingdom. He lives in a little village called Tekoa, and that little village is about just a few miles southeast of Bethlehem. So in your mind's eye, Jerusalem is over here. Bethlehem's a little southeast of Jerusalem, and is a little southeast in the Judean hillside. That's where Amos lives. And Amos, in his qualifications to be a prophet, is a shepherd and he is a farmer. He takes care of sycamore trees, we're told in his book, and he takes care of sheep. And somehow God comes to him and says, Amos, you're the guy, and you're going to prophesy, and I've got a message for you to give to Israel. But so it's so unique about Amos is that he doesn't write about the southern kingdom where he lives. He writes about the northern kingdom where he doesn't live, and as far as we know, hasn't been. Which is kind of interesting. This country dude, farmer, sheep, herder guy is going to speak to the great sophisticated northern kingdom. Now what's going on historically at the time is King Uzziah is the king of the southern kingdom. You've heard of him. And Jeroboam II is the king of the northern kingdom. And in this period of time, Israel is enjoying one of its greatest periods of affluence. So if you think back uh, what we've reviewed here, you know, the united kingdom, just three kings. We have Saul and David and Solomon. And at the end of Solomon's reign, we have some big trouble, the split of the kingdom, northern and southern. And what was going on in Solomon's reign was that he was expanding the influence and power of Israel. And the way Solomon expanded the power and influence of Israel is he kept marrying the daughters of the kings that surrounded him. He had many wives. For this reason, the kingdom collapsed. No, that's not true. (laughs) He had many wives. And, And each of those wives brought their own kind of belief systems and structures. And Solomon welcomed them. And so by the time we get to the end of Solomon's reign, the influence of Israel is at its widest. But what's going on inside is a kind of eating away and eroding of the belief structures and all kinds of new forms of worship are being introduced into the nation. And that's what ultimately splits the kingdom. And so now the kingdoms are split and we have sort of this time in which they, they're at odds with one another. But by now, a couple hundred years later, we're starting now to see them cooperate with each other. And a time of great affluence has come both to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In fact, uh, historians argue that this period of time, just before the fall to Assyria, we're seeing the greatest power and wealth concentrated in Israel in its history. Things are going really well. The, the, The commerce markets are doing well. And what has happened as a result of this great affluence is that people have become somewhat indifferent about their faith. Isn't that interesting? Like, you know, when times are good, we don't feel that diligent need to find God and to understand the deeper truths. We just feel okay living in the space we're in. And so there's an indifference about faith. And the people are just kind of wandering around and maybe you worship and maybe you don't. Maybe God's real. Maybe he's not. All that stuff is going on in Amos's day. But not only that, what's happening is this this great, you know, sort of strata of society becomes incredibly wealthy, there's this separation that's taking place. So you have this strata of very wealthy people, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then you still have very poor people. And in that sort of juxtaposition now, 
we're finding that the affluent people are beginning to bribe and buy off those who represent justice, but not only the people that represent justice, but also the priests and the church get all tangled up with the kings and the wealth. And you have this very odd time in which people are being exploited. Terrible, terrible stories come out of this period of time. Though the affluence is so good and powerful and the influence of the countries, both north and south, are very profound, still... People are being abused and ground up in the system. And justice is hard to find and righteousness is very rare. It's into this sort of context that Amos begins to write and he does his work and he shares the story of what will happen and what God thinks. And So let's take a moment and hold over there Amos and what he's going to do and say. And in a minute I'll read you some of the key passages and then I'll give you six quick things that we ought to think about the message that Amos gives to the northern and southern kingdoms about what it means to find meaning and purpose. And it centers around, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses their life will find it. Whoever saves their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And I, this is what I find fascinating. Long before there was such a thing as psychology, Amos is talking about deeply psychological things. And long before there's such a thing as psychology, Jesus is talking about deeply psychological things. So for a moment, let's talk about the meaning of life. Everybody up for that? Good. Let's do. What does it mean to have a meaningful life? And I don't mean in some theoretical way. I mean, if you ask yourself this question... When did I feel most fulfilled in my life and journey? What was I doing? What was happening around me? What would it be? What time? What was happening? What were the circumstances? Just to answer it for yourself. Forget all the shoulds and oughts for a minute and just say, when have I felt that my life was really on track? That I was really doing what I was intended and created to do? It's a question that's worth asking, and it's a question that's worth thinking about. Here's a couple of things. Here's a quote from Nelson Mandela that I think matters. For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. To be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Of others. I think we believe as a culture that freedom is our greatest expression of meaning and purpose. I'm free. In fact, when we were all growing up, people ask us this question frequently. I'm not sure psychologically it's healthy, but we do this. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? And what did we think? I don't know. I could be anything. (laughs) What do I want to be? Hmm. What do I want to be? What do I want to be? What do I, I want to be? What do I want? What do I want? And, and we live in a sort of understanding that what I want has a great deal to do with what makes life meaningful. I, we say to kids, you could be president of the United States. Anyone could be president. Clearly, anyone could be president. <laughs> Just so you know, I could have said that over any of the last several presidents, so don't be taking sides in here, because that ain't what we do. 
And we calculate our life based on what we want. And as we gain more freedom and more affluence, that becomes the bigger and bigger question. It gets pushed into the front window so that most of us in our journey, if we're honest, are asking that question, what do I want? What's happening to me? Why don't I feel this? Why don't I feel that? What would it take? What do I want? In the face of a gospel that says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow me. Because if you save your life, and I think when we hear these words, we think, oh, that means if I don't do everything God wants, at some point he'll send me to hell. But maybe what Jesus means is, if you save your life, if you live for yourself, life gets stripped of its meaning. But if you surrender and lose your life for my sake... You will find it. You will find what life is really about. George Bernard Shaw says these words, Liberty means responsibility. That's why people dread it. Liberty means responsibility. That's why most people dread it. And so when we begin to think about freedom and we think about what it means and we think about what we want, we, we kind of get into this mode in which we are looking inside for the meaning and the purpose. That's what I do. How do I feel? What do I think? What's going on with me? <laughs> Sometimes we think, you know what I want to do? I want to do good. I want to make a difference. I want to serve. That's what I want to do. H.L. Mencken, this is a very cynical quote, but I just thought I'd share it with you because why not? H.L. Mencken says these words, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. The urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Maybe too cynical, but sometimes it seems they get mixed up, don't they? I mean, don't you look around and you see a lot of people that must have had really good motives when they went into public service and then somehow along the way something happened? Just so you know, if you think I'm just out here pontificating, this is the message of Amos to Israel. This is what Amos is writing to this affluent northern kingdom that has lost its way and is now just a matter of decades from complete collapse. Viktor Frankl is one of my heroes. If you're not familiar with Viktor Frankl, he was a psychologist. He was taken into a Nazi concentration camp and because of his education and training, which is part of what got him interned at a concentration camp, he, he decided that when he arrived at the concentration camp, he would spend the time doing a case study on what happens to people in a concentration camp. And that's what he did. And so as he lived for the next three years or so in a concentration camp, he observed who survived and who didn't, and why did they survive and why did they not. He, he spends time, he tells us later on, he spent years writing and rewriting a book about man's search for meaning so that when he was liberated from the concentration camp, he wrote the book in two weeks, Man's Search for meaning. And, and that book, the first half, tells the story of his time in the concentration camp and what happened there. And then the last half of the book tells why some people survived or what he found to be the essential piece of how people ha would hang on or not hang on in that process. And so in it, he begins to talk about this meaning for life. Listen to this quote from him. Freedom, however, 
is not the last word. Freedom's only part of the story and half the truth. Freedom is but the negative aspect of the whole phenomenon whose positive aspect is responsibleness. In fact, freedom is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. That's why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Isn't that a beautiful quote? (laughs) But who ever thought? Because we believe freedom is the story of our meaningful search for life. But he says, no, no, that's just one piece. Freedom is a piece, but responsibility is the other piece. And then, since we're already all the way down this rabbit hole, I'm going to read you another Frankel quote. This one's a little more technical, but I love it. And I think it matters. By declaring that human beings are responsible and must actualize the potential meaning of their lives, I wish to stress that the true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world rather than within a person or our own psyche as though it were a closed system. I have termed this constitutive characteristic the self-transcendence of human existence. It denotes the fact that being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself, be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets oneself by giving themselves to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human they are and the more they actualize themselves. What is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all. For the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more they would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. That's a lot of language that means this. We live in a culture that looks inside for meaning, but meaning is not in here. It's up there. It's out there. That, that as we try to look inside and say, what do I want? What do I need? Why am I so unhappy? We have comfort. We have affluence. We have all the things we always thought we needed. We were on that path. What happened to us? Why do we live in a culture where people are so unhappy, where depression and anxiety is rampant in our culture? Is it possible it's because we are looking for meaning in all the wrong places? That it isn't in here. It's out there. It has something to do with community, and it has something to do with relationship, and it has something to do with a transcendent purpose in the world. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, because whoever saves their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The book of Amos I'll read you his words and then just give you six thoughts that I think he highlights. And I promise they are six quick thoughts for those of you who feel depressed at that news. <laughs> Amos 3, 1 and 2. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Amos 5, 11 through 24. You levy a straw tax on the poor. You impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. 
Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Anybody that wants to, you can copy that 13, verse 13 down and put it on your mirror. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say He is. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the court. Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord said. The Lord Almighty. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate. I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your harp, but let justice roll on like a river. And righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's thoroughly depressing. Let's unpack it just a little bit. Number one, Amos says, who you are matters. Who you are matters. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord is spoken. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. It matters who we think we are. We are told in God's word that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That who we really are. And what Amos is trying to remind us, listen, I brought you up out of Egypt so you would be a blessing to all the nations. I brought you up out of Egypt so that you would represent the kingdom of God alive on earth. That what happened in this place would be reflective of the kingdom of God in all of its power, in all of its glory, in all of its justice, in all of its righteousness. That's who you are. And you could look at all of us today and go, I I know that in your life, I know that in this crazy culture in which you live, I know you do things. I know you have jobs. Your job is your avocation. (laughs) That's what we have to do in order to pay the bills and live. It's not who we are. Who we are are the children of the living God, the kingdom of God alive on earth. Who we are are representatives that pray and breathe in and out. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done today. Your will be done in this conversation. Your will be done in this moment. Your will be done in this business transaction. Your will be done in this moment of interaction and conflict and politic. Your will be done in the culture. And I can't change and I'm not here to pontificate I am here to understand who I am. And I have been called and invited by the God of the universe to live in this place as if I am a citizen of his kingdom and not this kingdom. That's who we are. And Amos says, don't forget. Don't forget 
that who you are matters. Number two, don't forget that what you value matters. You levy a tax against the poor. You impose a tax on their grain. He's, he's referencing the fact that they had figured out that the poor, in order to survive, make bricks. And so then they take straw to make the bricks. So now we will tax the straw with which they create their subsistence. It's just a way of saying we're going to tax every single thing we can and the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. And he says that is not what matters. What you value matters. I don't know about you, but, but when I drive down the street and those lottery signs, which seem to be everywhere now, when you drive down the street and you see that lottery sign, when does it get your attention? Like 350 million, 400, 500 million? Because I think, you know, God, I could do a lot of good with that money. <laughs> Amen? I mean, what do we value? Most of us, you know, we would say, well, I'd do a lot of good with that money. I mean, I'd do me some good. I mean, I try to be reasonable, but I'd do me some good, and I'd do my kids some good, and I'd do their kids some good. I mean, I'd do good, but I'd do, I'd do, I'd do me some good. And I don't know you, but, but I have thought many times in my life, financial security would solve a whole lot of problems. Amen? I wish I... I don't know that I ever just said, that's what I want, because you don't really start out in life going, you know what, I want... Financial security. I think I'll go into ministry. It's usually, it's usually, I mean, maybe if you're a TV preacher or something, that would work out. But, but I, got, I wonder how many hours of my life have been spent stewing over that one single issue. Even though Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these... Your father knows you need these things. He knows. And I wonder how many of us today would say, if I really analyze where my emotions are, I know what I intellectually value, but emotionally what impacts me? Emotionally what knocks me over? Because Amos says to them, listen, I want you to value fairness. I want you to value genuine love one for another. I want you to value that you stand up for righteousness and you believe such a thing exists. Some things are better for us and relationships and other things are not as good for them. It's okay for us to be honest about that. It's okay for us to live a just and righteous life. What do we value? Do we genuinely value the things that are of the kingdom of God? Number three. What you say matters. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. I love that in the middle of the rant, Amos finds time to say, and oh, by the way, shh. I just think we all get just one seat at the game. We can only articulate our perspective. We can only articulate our experiences, but... Other people have different experiences. And often our words destroy connection even when we don't know we're doing it. Let me tell you one of the hardest things that happens as a pastor. I know a lot of personal stories. People confide them. 
They share them. They ask for prayer. We walk those journeys together. It's part of what this is. I can't tell you how many times I've been on a Sunday morning in a crowd and heard someone talking. And I've thought, oh my goodness. If only they knew who was sitting beside them and what they went through this week. Their hearts would break. They have no idea that the words that they are speaking are alienating and damaging and, and, and creating wounds inside of another person. They have no idea. They wouldn't do it on purpose. It's just that somehow they feel the freedom to express their own opinions and perspectives. And Joel, uh, Amos just says, listen, the prudent people in times like these that are so multi-layered and so complex and so difficult to navigate, they remain quiet. And in fact, the whole upshot of Amos is this, talk less and do more. I'm not saying you shouldn't stand up for righteousness, but just go stand up for righteousness. Don't talk about standing up for righteousness. Go do it. Go let justice flow like a river. Let righteousness like a mighty river. You, you know, go do something. What you say matters and how you say it matters. We are instructed that they will know we are followers of Jesus Christ by our love one for another. And that doesn't just mean we love people who think like, act like, look like, speak like us. We love all others. We are in that business. It's what we do. What we say matters. Number four, what you seek matters. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. Hate evil. Do good. This is one of the things that I think is really interesting about human beings. Because we're like, I don't know what good, I don't know, man. So, it's so pluralistic, the culture, it's so multi, I don't know what good is. I, I would say philosophically that, you know, we could argue that. Do you know what good is? Do you know what evil is? We could argue that because sometimes it's convoluted. But I think very rarely as individuals do we ever face a decision where we go, I think this one's better than that one. Amen? I mean, when's the last time that you had a decision to make and you were like, I think this is what I ought to do. But this is what I want to do. <laughs> Do good. Just do good. It matters what we seek. We seek good. We seek wholeness. We seek justice. We seek fairness. We, we seek a, a, a kingdom of God alive on earth where it all is right, where it's held. In, you know, God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. The whole earth full of His glory. You know, that's when Isaiah looks into heaven, that's what he sees. They're all sitting around going, hey, God, you're perfect. It turned out you're perfect. It turns out that the whole earth was full of your perfection and we didn't see it or understand it. Holy means God holds everything in perfect balance. Mercy and justice and kindness and he, he holds it all. Unlike us, we don't know how to do that. So what we seek begins to matter. I, I seek that. That's who I am. I'm an ambassador of reconciliation as though God himself is making his appeal. That's what he commissioned me to do. And I go do things for a vocation. But this is who I am. And this is what I value. And this is what I say. And this is what I seek. And then number five, what you think matters. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. They'll be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in the public square. You say you want the day of the Lord. Be careful what you wish for. And this is Amos' way of saying to a group of people, listen, you keep saying you want God to come and smite everybody. Be careful what you wish for. 
because you may find out that it's like running away from the lion and running into the bear. In other words, God might not be all that happy with where you are in the journey either. So while you're calling down his vengeance on someone else, you might want to pump the brakes. Because you may find out that the vengeance is not really them, it's us. And at the heart of what Amos is saying is this, why don't you pray for them, not wish vengeance on them? Amen? Should we not linger there? Because we all have it, don't we? The people that make us so mad. Amen? The prudent say less and do more. They seek good and not evil. And we don't think we're all right and we see it all, and other people are all wrong, and they don't get it. These folks are the folks that say, we're God's chosen people. He loves us better than anybody else. He wants us to win. He wants everybody else to lose. That was their spirit. Remember when Jesus comes along? He goes, you, th- you think because you're children of Abraham, you have some special... De- God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. You don't get a pass. <laughs> you don't get a pass. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. That's what we're about. That's who we are. And finally, what you worship matters. I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And then that famous verse at the end, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. In other words, he says... Listen, you can play at religion or you can worship the holiness of God. And the holiness of God is fair and it's just and it's righteous and it's good and it's good for everyone. When Jesus came and embodied the very person of God inhabited in human flesh, he was constantly hanging out with people who were the deplorables in the culture, who were beyond hope who were worthy of the vengeance of God, but not the grace of God. And Jesus just kept going to them, and he just kept spending time with them, and he just kept loving them. And and it turns out that those are the very people that were raised up that transformed the world in his name. What is meaningful to you? What is the meaning of life to you? It's worth thinking about. Amos articulates it so beautifully and well. And maybe we just quiet ourselves and we remember that Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It seems like that God's inviting us to a very humble way of serving. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow me. Because if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, for my sake, you'll find it. God, as we close and we respond to your word with these powerful words, take my life and let it be always, only, all for thee. Would you search us? We recognize the pressures. We recognize 
the ways in which we wish to find meaning, the ways we look inside, and we just humbly bow as a congregation. And we seek you. We recognize that there is a transcendent truth that that somewhere outside of our own wants and needs and wishes and worries and sadness and hope and anxiety and fear is a call, a mission, a purpose. I pray that you would help us to find it. I pray that you'd help us to seek it with all of our hearts. And I pray that in these closing moments you would do work in each one of us. And that your will would be done in us and on earth and in this church as it is in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.